0: Good morning. We're going to turn to God's Word now. If you don't have a church Bible, do wave your hand and I'm sure someone will bring you one. Um, We're going to look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 this morning and I'm going to read verses 1 to 15. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves, first to the Lord and then to us, in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what it is best for you to do in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others may be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there may be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathers much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Let me just pray for Mike before he comes up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to sit humbly underneath it this morning with open hearts and a willingness to be challenged and to be changed. We thank you so much for our Lord Jesus who gave up so much for us. Shape us this morning, we pray, into his likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, there comes a time in every family when it's good to have a chat about money. Maybe you can remember such a time when you were growing up or with your own children, at the time when the family sat down, rolled up their, parents rolled up their sleeves, and the cold light of economic reality began to dawn on the child's consciousness. We have these conversations with our older children fairly regularly. We try to explain that God is good to us and provides our needs, But at the same time, Melissa and I are not an ATM. (laughs) One example in Manchester, a school trip in year six called PGL. Wonderful fun. Three days at PGL, an outdoor pursuit center. But it costs 220 quid. Year six. So we said, guys, you want to go, you can pay half. You can ask for birthday money and put your birthday money towards it. Now, that doesn't make us bad parents, by the way. (laughs) It's reality. Now, whether you're a parent or not, you can see the sense in explaining three principles to children. Number one, some of the things you enjoy cost money. Number two, at some point, you're going to need to contribute. And number three, this is actually good for you. Yes, really. Because we all know people, or we've heard of people, or maybe seen them, who've grown up never having to, never having to contribute. They just always fell on into their lap, and it doesn't do their character any favors. Some of the things we enjoy cost money, and at some point, we need to contribute. And every family has times to talk about money, and so we're talking about it in our King's Church family today. So this sermon is mostly for the family, and by that I mean that group of Christians who meet here regularly. Uh, Whether you're a formal member of our church or someone who isn't a member yet but regards this as your spiritual home, this is for you. Um, There are times in a family when it's good to talk about money. And this is a great time. Why? We have a great message. The glad tidings of the gospel. You are more sinful and wicked than you ever realized, yet can be more loved and accepted in Jesus than you ever dreamed. That is a great message. We have a great mission to call all people into an ever-growing relationship with King Jesus. And we have a great opportunity to do it. So in this season, we're basically asking, are you in? Are you in? And the surest way to know people are in to something is if they're prepared to put their hand in their pocket and support it so this is a family chat about money and so we're going to read from the greatest fundraising letter ever written second corinthians 2 corinthians if you've closed your bible do turn it back to second corinthians 8 that's page 1163 that mary just read for us this is how the apostle paul asked a church to think about giving now let's turn to it and i've just got two points today remember the macedonians and remember the lord jesus Remember the Macedonians, remember the Lord Jesus. Firstly, remember the Macedonians. Verse 1, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What's going on? What's the situation? Macedonia is in uh, another part of Europe uh, to... Israel, but they still got news, and they knew that there was a severe famine in what we now call Israel, particularly the city of Jerusalem. Many people were starving, and so there were Christians in the church in Jerusalem who were literally living hand-to-mouth, and word of this had got to the Macedonian churches. And the Apostle Paul was doing a collection, a financial collection, around Europe to support the needs of the poor in Jerusalem, because they were in a dire dire situation. No social services, no state relief. They were uh, really up against it. So it's relief work uh, from the the churches around Europe to help the Jerusalem church. And it's not just relief, it's an expression of solidarity. We're with you. An expression of love, of unity, of gratitude from the non-Jewish Christians to the Jewish Christians from whom the gospel had come. Now this collection is mentioned in four different places in Paul's letters so it really is a big deal it's not a small thing that's just kind of on the sidebar he writes about it in 1 Corinthians 16 he gives explicit instructions about how to do the collection he also mentions it in Romans chapter 15 but here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 we have two whole chapters that are devoted to a collection it's a fundraising letter And this is how the fundraising starts. Verse 1, he reminds the Corinthians, they're the guys who got the letter, he reminds the Corinthians who are Greek about the Macedonian churches. We want you to know the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And he says three things about these Macedonians in verse 2. Firstly, they were really poor. Verse 2 says uh, their extreme poverty. They were not rich people. They were literally deep in deep poverty. Secondly, they had overflowing joy. Overflowing joy. That means an abundance, like a surplus of joy. They had so much joy, it was too much. It It was more joy than you could share. Although they were poor, they were full of joy. We all know that money doesn't bring happiness, don't we? We know that, but do we believe it? Even the most extraordinary wealth doesn't make people happy, does it? It doesn't make them secure. Wealth is inherently unstable. It never delivers what it promises, although it looks secure from the outside. Arnold Schwarzenegger said, money doesn't make you happy. I now have $50 million, but I was just as happy when I had $48 million. You've got to take it from Arnie, haven't you? But sometimes we're lulled into thinking that more money would make us happy. But it can't. Jesus talks about the cares of wealth. Wealth brings more cares. Wealth brings more cares. If you have a really nice car, you've actually got more care about looking after it than when you had a really scruffy old banger. Somebody keyed that car, you weren't really too bothered. Money can't give you overflowing joy. Only knowing Jesus Christ can. So extreme poverty, overflowing joy, but thirdly, rich generosity. The amazing thing about these Macedonians was that their great joy overwhelmed into rich generosity. It overflowed. They were richly generous. Verse 3 says they gave as much as they were able able, and even beyond their ability. They went over the top. No, no, guys, stop now. You can't give this much. Verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of giving. They thought, they thought giving to these starving Christians in Jerusalem was actually a privilege. And in verse 5, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. It came from them. It came from their hearts. It welled over in them. No one told them to do it. Now that is a rare combination, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. What's your first instinct when the money situation looks bad? What happens to your emotional state? What happens to your heart? Are you full of abundant joy and overflowing generosity? Ten years ago or so, we had a money scare in our family. For a few days, I was under the impression that we owed uh, repayments to the government of thousands of pounds because of an innocent mistake that the church had made. I have to confess, during that time, I was not abundantly joyful. I had a face like this. My heart was exposed. The primary emotion going through my body was raw fear. And it welled up into overflowing grumpiness. <laughs> to all around. Why was that? Because of what money meant to me. Now, it means different things to different people. For some of us, money means security. If you grew up in a home where you didn't have much, kids get this impression, you know, Ooh. Kids can pick up stuff. If you grew up in a home where there wasn't much, money might mean security to you. If I've just got enough, I'll be OK. You worry if you haven't. For other people, money basically means kind of power. It gives you power over your life. It gives you a certain kind of power in the world. Money gives you the power to choose things. If you have money, you can make choices. I can do this or that or that. I can make these plans. If you've got no money, you've got no choices. One reason why people fear poverty is that your choices get taken away. Somebody else makes choices for you. That's one of the hardest things about being poor. Money also gives us the power to be free. Some of you here, money is really all about freedom. If you have money, you can do what you like without worrying about it. And isn't it lovely to feel free and not always counting the cost of which shop has the cheapest tin of beans. Talk to my wife if you want supermarket price comparisons. It's a hobby. Money gives you status. This is why many people work hard to look richer than they actually are. Because that gives them status. Money gives status. There was a man at this church many years ago, a wonderful character called Dave Gillam. Some of you remember him, very, very talented man. He became the chief executive of a national company in his 30s, Dave Gillam, And he told me something fascinating. There was an economic downturn. The firm was cutting costs, and he called in the senior management team. And they were sitting around the table, and he said, Look, team, uh, we've got to cut costs. The good news is you're all keeping your jobs. The bad news is we've got to cost, cut, cut costs somehow, so you have a choice. You can either take a pay cut or you can have a downgrade in your company car to a small car. What do you think they chose? The pay cut. Because no one can see a pay cut, but if you've got a small company car, looks like it's gone down a bit, pecking order. Money gives us power. Make choices, be free, status, recognition of other people. And so we are actually captive to it. We are enslaved by it. It has us in its grip. A member of this church recently wrote to me. He said, I'm really looking forward to the series on giving. My heart needs it. I feel like I used to be driven by the love of money. Now it's the fear of not having enough. He continued, When you don't have much, all you do is dream of having it. And then when you're in a position of higher earning, all you do is fear losing it. The scaremongering of the BBC and the press is like a poison as well, convincing us we're all poor when so many of us are privileged behind all imagination to 99% of the world. It gets gets you, we're enslaved by it, we desperately need it, we feel, we are proud when we have it and we're fearful and anxious when we don't have it. Now how can you tell if, if some of this is going on in your own heart? Here are a few diagnostic questions. Ready? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Firstly, do you worry about money? Secondly, do you complain about money? Always pleading poverty. I'm not looking over here, by the way. Thirdly, does money make you afraid? Fourthly, does money, when you have it, make you overconfident? Fifthly, do you fondle your possessions? It's a bit of a funny word, isn't it? You know, you kind of get something and just... My dad always teases me. I'll do this with books. Kind of... don't, don't, Don't break the spine! Fondle them. Do you fondle your possessions? Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, then it's likely that money has become part of your identity. And if that is the case, you can never experience overflowing joy like the Macedonians, and you will never really well up in rich generosity like the Macedonians. You and I need to remember the Macedonians, point one. Now, what was their secret? Were they this remarkable group of super-spiritual Christians? No, they're very ordinary people. In fact, they were poor people. Not many rich, maybe not any. But the text says that a grace was given to them. That's really interesting there in verse 1. We want you to know about the grace that God has given to these people. What was the grace? The grace was generosity. It's a gift from God to be generous. God gave it to them, and that's why we need to talk about money in church. Because we actually think that money is unspiritual it's a bit grubby I shouldn't talk about that it's rude poor form it's a bit vulgar but it turns out that money is deeply spiritual it's very very interesting you know in in being a pastor people will talk to me about any literally anything you know that people will share with a pastor their deepest struggles their secrets their shame their sex lives anything But we don't talk about money. Oh, no. (laughs) Keep that off limits. I haven't seen it. I don't know how much you give. It's all right. As if that's somehow off limits. But money, according to the Bible, is deeply spiritual. When you think about God giving grace for something, you might think of God giving somebody inner peace or patience or making them very loving or joyful or helping them to be kind or or, or be a great servant. Or, Or we often think about gifts, you know. Wow, the grace of those musicians, weren't they wonderful this morning? Or the grace of this or that, the gift of teaching, and all those things are are graces, yeah. But in Macedonia, the grace of God meant putting their hands in their pockets for some Jewish Christians they never, ever met, but they knew were brothers and sisters on the other part of the world. Now, if these really are just ordinary people who have received an extraordinary grace from God, how did it happen? How does an ordinary person receive this grace of God and be transformed like that? The answer is in verse 9. And this is my second and final point. Remember the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul says in verse 8, I'm not commanding you. You know, this is the guy, Paul, he's the greatest Christian leader of that generation maybe ever the the most brilliant theologian the most dynamic church planter the most entrepreneurial missionary and he funded his own work with his own hands because he had a a skilled trade, he was a tradesman who could make tents this man speaks with the authority that's been given to him by Jesus Christ and he says I'm not going to command you don't give because I'm telling you to This is not an order. He says, just think about the Lord Jesus. Now, some of us uh, have heard about something called the law of tithing. Tithing, it's a practice that's in the Old Testament. And a tithe is an old-fashioned word that means tenth, 10%. And if you look at Leviticus chapter 27, you see this word used for the first time. We won't go into the details. Tithing is 10%. And many churches do teach that Christians ought to give 10% of their income to the gospel. But we don't advocate that at this church. Why not? It's in the Bible. Several reasons. Firstly, we understand that the Old Testament legislation is carried forward in different ways. So, Old Testament moral law, like the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not steal, you shall not murder. The moral law is carried forward in its entirety. Some of the Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus and has stopped. So the the Old Testament law about sacrifices, sacrificing a lamb or a dove or a goat in the temple, all of that system, the sacrificial system has finished because Jesus Christ is our sacrifice once for all because the temple now is his people wherever they meet. We don't need, and the priest is Jesus. So we don't need any of that system. And some of the Old Testament laws apply to very, very specific situations in a tribal culture in 1500 to 500 BC, an agrarian economy. So these principles are not directly applicable. So we don't think that tithing is a law carried forward into the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't reinforce it. And the context of the scattered good people of God all around the world is so different from that country of Israel. Israel had a 10% tax burden. 10% tax burden, wouldn't that be nice? You know what the, the most money you will spend on in your life is? It's not your kids, it's not your house, it's your government. Anyway, we won't get started on that. But all scripture is God's word. So like other Old Testament laws, there are principles to learn from tithing. But new dynamics now inform our finances as Christians in the new covenant. So what do we find here? Paul doesn't turn the screw. He doesn't make them feel guilty. He doesn't say, you know, you're much better off than those poor starving people in Jerusalem. You really ought to do it. He doesn't send them photos of starving Jerusalem kids. You know, sponsor Benjamin. He doesn't do that. He says, the reason you should give, friends, is the gospel. But he presents the gospel in financial terms. It's quite brilliant. Financial terms, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus was rich beyond imagination, he was eternally God. He made the world, he rules the universe. It's all his. He's waited on by legions of angels who are so in awe of him that they cover their faces. Jesus was relationally rich. He's in a relationship of love, untainted love, happy love with the Father and the Spirit throughout all eternity. Was Jesus rich? The word rich doesn't do it justice. And yet, Paul says, Jesus became poor for your sake that beggars belief he who was God emptied himself of all that divinity and became a human being and not a a great one not a VIP or a king he became a local tradesman and then he gave up his trade and became an itinerant preacher with no salary not much money in that and actually Jesus for some time was homeless He became poor. But you know there's more than that. Jesus gave up his status, his good name. He was despised. He was belittled. He was marginalized. He was laughed at. He was spat upon. He still is. He was a poor man for a while. He gave up his rich status. All for love's sake became as poor. But there's even more than that. Because the richness of that love relationship was bankrupted at the cross. As Jesus' arms were spread out and he suffered and bled and died, he surrendered everything. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a cry of dereliction of someone who had nothing left. Did Jesus become poor The word poor doesn't do it justice and why did he do it? Verse 9 says that Jesus Christ did all of this for your sake so that you might become rich. So let me ask you this morning, are you rich? The text says that Jesus came to make you rich, has he succeeded or failed? In his, his mission to make you rich, has he failed? Did the prince of heaven come to earth? To find a bride and rescue her from a slum and fail to make her rich. What do you have if you're a Christian here this morning? You are rich in forgiveness. No matter what you've done, God loves and accepts you. Clean slate. You're rich in love. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ. You couldn't be loved more. You're rich in adoption. God doesn't just sort of forgive you and give you a seat in the stands. He brings you to the family table. You have the inheritance of sons, daughters. You're rich in hope. We have a living hope, a sure and certain hope of the resurrection, the world to come. Guaranteed for us. Sealed. Your adoption papers are sealed, written in the blood of Jesus Christ. You're rich in community. We have a community that is unlike any other community in the world. All other communities are gathered around some shared thing they have in common. We all like rugby. We join the rugby club. We all like car boot sales. We go to car boot sales on Sunday morning. We all like whatever it is, all these communities. There's one community that's just absolutely diverse in its essence, and that is the local church. It's a wonderful thing. You can't explain it apart from the gospel. You're rich in joy. Now these are actually the real riches in life. We we forget this all the time. These are actually the things that people really want, you know, but they don't realize. We blindly think that winning the lottery would get all of this, but it doesn't work. You know, many professional footballers are actually bankrupt within five years of retiring. Having millions doesn't automatically make you more lovely or give you a community of friends who really love you or clear your conscience, does it? Obviously not. We have real riches. And how did you acquire this wealth, friends? You acquired it at the cross. How much of his status did Jesus Christ hang on to as he hung naked bruised and battered, spat upon, fighting for breath. How much glory and power and reputation did Jesus forego when he emptied himself and became a slave? What percentage of himself did Jesus give for us? 10%. You see why talking about 10% just drops out of the New Testament? If Jesus only gave me 10% of his blood, I'd be in trouble. 10% is a minimum. How great is the gift? If we're now co-heirs with Jesus Christ, what kind of inheritance are we looking forward to now? The world to come. And when you believe this, it blows your wallet open. A church member once wrote to me, some people think tithing is about giving money to God. I used to think that as well, but now I believe There's a principle around giving God the best of ourselves, including our time and money. In Matthew 6, it says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I take this to mean that money, but also other things. So when I give, I do it because God wants my heart. I know God doesn't need my money, but he does want my heart. And she continued, I give because I want to give God my best. The money I receive is the fruit of my labor, and without God, I wouldn't be able to make money. Therefore, I give back what belongs to God to demonstrate my love for him a desire to put him first. Beautiful words. See, it's not about the amount. It's about the heart. It's about the attitude. So as we, this season, ask you, uh, as friends and church family, to join in, we have set a target, uh, a stretching one, an increase in our regular giving of 12000 a month And regular monthly giving is really important because it's more stable. We can plan and set a budget for the year ahead and recruit people on that basis. So if you're already giving, can I encourage you to remember the Macedonians? And if you're not yet giving, we'd love you to get involved. Remember the Macedonians. Their generosity was breathtaking. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness to us, your generosity. And help us to remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Amen.